Well, friends, let me ask you to turn in your copy of the Bible to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll be looking at the, uh, the whole of the chapter tonight as we, uh, we kind of are in our, our, our series in this book. We've gotten through a, a couple of weeks already, and I uh, hope, uh, hope you've been enjoying our time in it. Uh, we're, we're kind of in the easier parts in some ways. We get into more uh, Old Testament details down the road. But already here in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we've seen really the, the primary point of the whole book. The primary point of the Hebrews, just to repeat it myself over and over again, is that Christians would know Jesus Christ. The primary point of this book is that Christians would know Jesus Christ, that they would see Jesus Christ, they would understand him. I think I mentioned early on in our series that uh, many of us know facts about Jesus, but very few of us know Jesus Christ. It's very common to know facts about Jesus, to know your catechism, to know and be taught of all the Bible verses. But it's a very different thing to know Jesus Christ, and that's what the author of Hebrews wants. So let me come to the text now. Let me go ahead and read the entirety of chapter 3. Let me remind you again, this is God's word. It's his perfect word, his good word. It's healthy for you to hear the word of God. It's not a boring thing, but it's actually uh, like having a good meal. So let's treat it like that. Let's assume we're going to get something out of it. And let's hear the word of the author of Hebrews and God. Beginning in verse 1, Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Lord, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's end the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for him to bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Lord, we come. 
We come tonight, perhaps not really being tempted by Moses, but Lord, being tempted just like the people of God under Moses. Lord, we come as those who are tempted to disbelieve your promises, to prefer our ways, to seek out our thoughts, to look at the world from our angle, and to make our choices in our way. Father, we have far too much of Esau the beast in our hearts. Help us tonight to come and see Christ and to know him as he is and to believe in him. Help us, we pray. Encourage us tonight with your word. Give us your Holy Spirit more deeply to love and serve you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the whole point of the book of Hebrews, know Christ. The whole point of the book, these Christians know Christ. What's striking here is that the author kind of tells you off the bat, look at verse one, he tells you off the bat what the rest of the whole book's going to be about. He says the whole of the book of Hebrews from here on out is going to tell you two things about Jesus. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. What's fascinating here is that as he opens up this chapter, the author in a unique way, in a way that I don't think I've ever used in my Christian life ever to describe Jesus. I never heard y'all say it. I've not heard anybody speak this way. You can go your whole Christian life and never use this term with Jesus, but it's right here in verse one, Jesus, the apostle. I've never heard anybody call Jesus the apostle, the sent one, apostolos, right? The one sent from God. The other says, consider Jesus as the apostle and the high priest. And this is basically, these are the two handles. If you want to understand the rest of the book of Hebrews, it's all about Jesus as the apostle and Jesus as the high priest. These next couple of chapters, chapter three and chapter four, it's going to be Jesus the apostle. He's going to explore what it means that Christ is the one who is sent. And then starting off in chapter 5, right through chapter 10, and then onward, the high priest, apostle high priest. He wants you to, something about knowing Jesus as the apostle and knowing him as the high priest is, well, it's what you need. It's what you need as a Christian. And so he begins here talking about Jesus as the apostle. Jesus as the set one. What does that mean? He he teases it out here. He goes in verse 1 to verse 6. And compares Jesus to Old Testament guy, Moses. He compares him to Moses. That's why he mentions Moses, actually, because in the Old Testament, Moses was the apostle sent by God. We don't talk about him in that way. We don't say a great apostle Moses, but he was the man sent. He was the one commissioned. Remember, he he meets in Exodus 3, Moses does, with a burning bush. And God tells him, you're my servant. I pick you. I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And when you recall that Moses, of course, had issues with that, he didn't want to go. He was a reluctant apostle. And the Lord says, okay, when you go before Pharaoh, when you go to Israel and they ask, who who, who do you think you are? Remember how the Lord disclosed his covenant name, Exodus 3.14, I am has sent you. Tell them this, tell them I am has sent you. What is Moses? He's an apostle. And we are told here in verse 2 
that there are deep similarities between Moses and Jesus. Both are faithful. Both serve God. Both were obedient to God. And though those are similarities, the author's real point, the whole focus here is to say, there is no real comparison between great apostle Moses and Jesus Christ. As amazing as Moses was, as wonderful and obedient and servant-hearted and leadership-minded and miracle-doing, as wonderful as Moses was, he was just a servant. Just a servant. He barely had any glory compared to Jesus Christ. Moses is the butler who putters around the house. He's the maid. Jesus is the son who will own the house. He's the son who will own the house. Zero comparison. He's in the family. It belongs to him. He has sovereign access to the house. It's the difference between being a slave and being an heir. Jesus is the builder of the house. He's the constructor of the house. He gets so much more honor, so much more glory. And it's striking here, for example, that in verse 6, the author says, we are his house. We're God's house. We're the house of Jesus. Now, why is that so important to these Christians? You've got to remember that these particular, the original audience of the book of Hebrews had lost their church building. They didn't have a nice building. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have a synagogue. They had lost their access to it. But they're told now that in Jesus Christ, through his work, through Jesus as the apostle, the sent one from God, they have a house. God's building them a house. And God says, look at my house, but don't look at it from the outside. In fact, that's why he says we are his house, not we see his house, not we look at his house. But we are his house. <clears throat> it's a common danger, and I fall into it. I think you fall into it, too. It's a common danger to constantly critique the church, the American church, you know, the, the uh, Protestant church, the Presbyterian church. I fall into it. You fall into it. We love to have discussions about the church. We make a field day of our problems, our concerns, our issues. But you know, there's a world of difference between being an armchair quarterback carping from the sidelines and the person who plays the game on the field. Look, this is the difference between me talking about cooking and you actually cooking. A world of difference between what I know and think about cooking. Oh, it's a great meal, a terrible meal. And you actually doing the cooking. Very different. As with any skill, any sport, I can hear beautiful piano music. I have no idea how to play the piano. And yet I, I, I like to say, well, that's a good, that, that person sounds good, that person doesn't sound good. So he, he, here it is with the church, not with a skill, not with cooking, not with, you know, a sport, not with an activity. But God says, you need to see yourself on the inside of church. There's a world difference between looking outside at the church and thinking that you're outside and seeing that you're inside the church. The church is far bigger on the inside than it looks like. The church is far more on the inside. I'm not talking about the building here. 
In fact, neither is the author of Hebrews. We are his house. Not to minimize the congregation, but to maximize, to take heart that congregational life is to be humongous. And he puts it here in verse 6 in this fascinating way. We are God's house if, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Now listen to the logic here. We are God's house today if tomorrow and every day afterwards we hold fast. We are God's house right now if in the future we continue to boast in the hope. And this sounds weird because you and I are trained to think it should be the opposite. You and I are trained to think, well, because I'm God's house, because I'm God's, I'm going to hold fast. We love to go to John chapter 10 and, and, and listen to Christ say, nobody's going to pluck you out of my hand. Nobody will be able to do it. Don't worry, you're set. And yet the author of Hebrews says, you are only God's house if we persevere. Look down at verse 14. It's the same sort of deal. In fact, even more clear in verse 14. <clears throat> we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Something is true of us now if something is true of us in the future. What's the point made making here? He's saying that as the members of Christ's church, you are the members of Christ's church only so long as you persevere in your faith. Now, I thought here in the, in the Presbyterian church, we believe that, you know, once you're saved, you'll be kept by the Father's hand. Yes, if you're saved. The question is not, are those saved always saved? Yes, if you are saved, you will be saved always. If you are saved, you will persevere in the faith. You will hold fast your confession. That's not the question. It's not a question of the perseverance of the saints. It's a question of, are you a saint? Were you once saved? Have you ever even been close to it? Or is it a figment of your imagination? This is why the author of Hebrews over and over again says, do you know Jesus Christ? And do you have evidence? Is there anything in your life that actually points that out? That's why in John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you're not following, you're not sheep. That's the point. Our great pastor here in, in Hebrews has no problem telling you once saved, always saved. He has no problem telling you that the saints are preserved by God. He has no problem saying that. But, but he wants you to ask the practical question, are the evidences of salvation at all present in us? And the great evidence that you were once saved is that you are persevering in the faith. And he wants to bring this word to you. Consider Jesus. Verse one, consider Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Run the race with vigor. Focus on the Savior. So what is one of the clear danger signs for us tonight? What's one of the clear danger signs you need to watch out for? Very simple. Not looking to Jesus Christ. If he says, consider Jesus, if he says we are to hold fast our confession of Christ, what is one of the great warning signals? What's the red flag? Making your Christianity about something besides Jesus Christ. Making your view of the church about something besides the Savior. 
going through last week, going through yesterday, and never having Jesus come into your mind. Does that happen to you? I mean, it's not that you're trying to not think about Jesus. It's not that you're, you know, trying to avoid God. But you just kind of can live your life and there's no real Jesus there. Do you not see the sheer presumption to think you belong to Jesus if there is zero seconds in your day where Jesus ever changes you, where Jesus ever comes into your brain, where you ever consider him? If you don't ever consider him in your day-to-day life, why do you think you'd, you'd be in his house? And then to strike home the point, the author in verse 7 goes back to what the Bible says. He goes back to what the Bible says. He quotes the old psalm, Psalm 95. See, the pastor of Hebrews is a good doctor, like a good surgeon. He, he says, I'm going to have to cut you but I'm going to heal you in the end. I'm going to cut you. I'm going to cut away this uh, infection to heal you. Imagine asking your surgeon, uh, doctor, hey, doc, after this is done, there won't be any pain, right? I mean, in the surgery, there won't be any pain at all. Your surgeon would say, no, if you don't feel pain, there's a problem. It has to be painful. And so this is what the author is doing. He's saying, you need to listen to this exhortation about the Old Testament. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But at the end, you're going to be healed. Now, before we get to the actual quote, look at verse 7. Something very striking here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Psalms. He didn't say, as David says, as the psalmist says, as Asaph says. He didn't even say, as God says. As the Holy Spirit says. It's a beautiful doctrine of Scripture, friends, that we believe the Holy Spirit does not just speak after Pentecost, but the Holy Spirit speaks in all of the words of Scripture. That's what the author of Hebrews thought. The Holy Spirit speaks in the Old Testament. And what does the Holy Spirit do here? What is the author of Hebrews concerned about here? He's concerned with cardiac arrest. He's concerned with arterial disease. He's concerned with hard-heartedness. He says the people in the Exodus had cardiac issues. They had hard hearts. The Israelites were brought out from slavery, but they were never brought in. They were brought out from slavery, but they were not brought in. Look at verse 12. After he quotes the psalm, he says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. It's a hard word. It's a warning, of course. A warning of an evil heart. What's an evil heart? Well, maybe the best way to think about it is An evil heart in the New Testament, what's the opposite of an evil heart? A pure heart. Evil heart, pure heart. If you recall in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ talks about the Beatitudes. He says the pure in heart, they shall see God. What's a pure heart then? Purity of heart is the ability to have a single-minded focus, an undivided. What does it mean to have a pure heart? It means that you're not divided. 
but you're focused joyfully on Jesus Christ. And the warning here in verse 12 and following is a warning against the impurities that can choke your heart out, that can divide your heart. It's like the seed in the parable of the sower. The seed is thrown, and, and at first it, it seems like it's going to bear fruit. You know, it, it seems like it's bearing fruit. But the cares of the world choke it out. The fruit ain't lasting. It's not real fruit. That was the problem in the Exodus. Remember a place like Numbers chapter 11. The people are getting manna from heaven every single day. God's feeding them over and over again. And their response is to complain. They murmur. They say, I want something more. I want shrimp and grits back in Egypt. I want watermelons. I want well, cucumbers. I don't know why they want cucumbers. They wanted them. You may not agree with all their, all their choices. But they wanted Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And what had happened to them? What happened to these people that the author of Hebrews is saying, you need to look at these people as an example of what not to do. Well, what had happened to them? Egypt was still in their heart. Their heart was divided, and therefore they were spiritually neutered. They were spiritually destroyed. And then look at verse 13. He says, first, verse 12, take care, watch out. And then verse 13, here's what you need to do. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It tells us what sin is, right? Sin, boys and girls, is not just doing bad things. Not just disobeying your parents. Sin is actually, well, doing something you think is good, but it's wrong. Sin is deceitful. Sin is a liar. We choose it because we think it's good. Moses, we are told, was not deceived by sin. Moses, we are told, chose suffering with God above all the riches of Egypt. And that's a great question for us to consider tonight. Do you see that suffering with Jesus is greater than any lottery ticket you can buy? Do you realize that suffering with Christ is greater treasure than signing the the million-dollar endorsement deal that that the athletes do? Do you realize that suffering with Christ is more significant than any worldly good you may have? Do you see it that way? I mean, I don't think any of us would mind having a private jet. I don't think any of us would mind having a, a chauffeur, a cushy life. No more financial worries. That'd be great. Millions of dollars. All the things you want, all the toys you want, all the, you can buy all the friends you need. But do you consider that suffering with Jesus Christ is worth more than all that stuff? That sin is a bubble, a so, an air bubble that will pop. It's a deceit. So do you see it? And then the great surgeon of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says... Let me help your eyesight. Let me help you see what really is the problem, the deceitfulness of sin. It hardens your heart. And he says, in fact, you and I had the same problem as they did back then. Verse 17, uh, they provoked him. They provoke God for 40 years. You provoke God too. We provoke God. We provoke God by our living, by our bad living. We have bad lifestyles. 
It's a common problem in medicine, isn't it? You go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, look, your current diet ain't going to work. Your current life, the way you live right now, you keep it up, you're going to die in 10 years. You're killing yourself. You have this problem. You need to deal with it. You have cancer. You need to deal with the sickness. You need to care for it right now. Fix it. Fix your life. And of course, what does the patient do? The patient can either say, yes, I agree with you. I'm going to change my life. Or they're going to say, no, I think you're a quack doc. You're wrong because you don't see it. We, we think we're doing okay. We think all this stuff about sin, all this language about hardness of heart, never going to happen to me. I'm a Christian. How could this, I mean, I, I'm here Sunday night. How could this happen to me? And God says, there is no plan B if you're deceived. Here's the plan. You enter my promised land or you die in the wilderness. That's his plan. That's all he has. There's no, there's no kind of get out of jail free card for you because you've been coming to church all your life or you have uh, godly parents or you pray or you uh, read the catechism or you know your Bible or you do good work or you give to the poor. You have an, a, a wonderful family. None of that is the case. There's only one plan, God's plan. So what's the prescription? I mean, if you're, if you're hearing this and you're, you're reading this and you're sensing that <clears throat> there's provocation, you realize in your life, yeah, there's, there's areas where I don't believe God. I don't think about you. I don't consider Christ. Well, what's the prescription from, from the master doctor here? If you're redlining your soul, he gives you two pills to swallow. He gives you two, two bottles to swig. I've been taking a lot of pills last week. Here are the pills he gives. Here are the pills he gives. First pill. First pill. Number one, listen to what the Spirit is saying. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. As the Holy Spirit says, he is preaching to us. In other words, very simply, make sure your life actually is under the word of God. Make sure your life is actually under the word of your God. Our homes, our neighborhoods, our, our uh, churches are full of people going to all other types of advisors. You can go to all other sorts of friends. You can hear all sorts of counsel. But are you willing to place yourself under the preached word of God? The very first principle of any good Christian counselor is this. Are you putting yourself under the faithful preaching of God's word? This is what happens to people, right, that, that don't do that. They always fumble around for a new trick. It's the people, it's the problem of Israel in the wilderness that they heard God's word. They didn't want to put themselves under it. So what happened? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They were always trying to get back to Egypt. They murmur. They complain. They fight. But friends, normal Christian living is right here, right now. Sunday morning, Sunday evening. A Christian counselor can say to you, I'm going to give you Bible homework. That's good. I'm going to give you homework from the Bible. That's good. But only God has instituted worship here and now. Because this is the chief way his word actually works in us. You can have homework where you go to the Bible. And that's great. But only this is the way the word actually is going to get inside you. It can go into so many crevices, so many dark places, so many uh, corroded arteries of your soul that a counselor can't get to, that a good friend can't get to, that your spouse can't get to you. 
as we neglect this basic medicine of the Christian faith, the Holy Spirit speaking in the word, we get more and more confused. Isn't that surprising? It's not rocket science. And along with that, did you notice one of the ways the word works? Verse 13. But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As you are under the word, the ministry of the word, what are you to do? You're actually to give that word to other people. He gives this incredible command. Exhort one another as long as it is today. If you think you're a good person, if you're a good Christian, you think you kind of keep all of God's commandments. I mean, this one right here is going to get you. It gets me. Do you live every day making sure you exhort somebody? Even if it's just a, how are you doing these days? So much, that can mean so much to people. That basic comment right there. Exhort one another today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's really the first uh, pill you got to take, the word and the way it works in our ordinary lives. But second, he's talking here about the heart. So what's what's the issue? Well, it's verse 12. Take care lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart. What does he mean? It's very simple. Second pill, guard your heart. Guard your heart. The author keeps talking about the heart. You got to watch your heart carefully. What does that mean? Does that mean you, you take your heart out? Please don't do that. Right? Does that mean you, you, you go into your chest and your heart? No. What he means here is, is my heart directed towards Jesus Christ? I like the way the old Scottish pastor, Willie Still, put it. And he said, make sure there's a sanctuary in your heart that nobody else enters except Jesus Christ. Make sure there's a sanctuary in your heart that nobody else enters except Jesus Christ. That includes your spouse. That includes your best bud. That includes your kids. That includes your parents. That's what it means to guard your heart. To have the place where you worship Jesus alone and nobody else. Nothing else. That's why the whole chapter begins with, You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. You already share in the calling from heaven. But the author of Hebrews says you need to consider more of Jesus Christ. My, my doctor friends, my, my pharmacist friends, I have a, an in-law who's a pharmacist. He tells me that uh, about 67% of all prescriptions written by doctors never reach the pharmacist. I heard that and I was surprised because I, I usually go to the pharmacist when I get the medicine because I want the antibiotics or whatever. I want the medicine. But um, two-thirds, roughly, of all prescriptions written by doctors never reach the pharmacist. We can be prone to thinking that the prescriptions doctors write are followed carefully. Well, we come tonight to a prescription given by Dr. Jesus. And maybe only a third of you here will listen to it. Make sure you're one of third. Make sure you're one of the 33%. Make sure you're one of those who hear and don't rebel. Who exhort one another with the word of God. Who consider Jesus Christ, the apostle, the sent one of our confession. Let's pray. 
And Lord our God, we thank you that you give us Christ, that you continually call us back to him. We pray that you would show us more of him. They would help us to take care, to guard our hearts in Christ, to listen to your word by your spirit spoken to us, to take care of the example given here in the Old Testament, to not follow in their ways and to war against the evil within us. I pray you would help us to do that together as one people, as your house. Hold fast to our confession. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.